Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Episode 15 of our series reviews openers between 1979 and 1990. First, a little background. Pete Rose left the Reds before the 1979 season and joined the Phillies as the economics of baseball were changing. The courts and arbitrator Peter Seitz had outlawed the reserve clause in 1975 that allowed teams to bind players to the same team year after year. Players and owners had negotiated that players could become free agents after six years of major league service, meaning they could then sell their services to the highest bidder. They'd also negotiated provisions requiring arbitration of salary disputes between teams and players with greater than three years of service. No longer were so-called small market teams such as Cincinnati on the same level as big market teams such as those in New York or Chicago. It was now classic capitalism and teams were more able to compete against each other for players. As a result of free agency, the Reds had looked in their crystal ball after their 1976 World Series victory and decided they could not afford all their stars. They had been in seven World Series in the 37 years between 1939 and 1976. But they would be in only one between 1977 and 2019. Is that because they have been disadvantaged since the 1970s? Or has their business strategy been wrong? After all, the sport has always been a business. Enough of that. Let's get on with our review of opening days from 79 through 1990. We call 1979 Sour Moods. It was a winter of discontent. Dick Wagner had replaced the architect of the Big Red Machine, Bob Housem, as president and chief executive officer of the Reds. Wagner made the hugely unpopular decision to fire manager Sparky Anderson, who had guided the Reds to five division championships, four World Series appearances, and two World Championships in nine seasons. To make matters worse, Wagner did the unthinkable. He refused to sign free agent Pete Rose, resulting in Rose signing a four-year contract with the Philadelphia Phillies just a week after Anderson was fired. A disgruntled fan took action on behalf of all Reds fans by hanging Wagner in effigy on Fountain Square. The weather on the morning of the opener mirrored the mood of the fans. It was gloomy, damp, cloudy. The rain stopped an hour before the 59th annual parade began. Carrying on the zany antics that had long been part of opening day, six marchers dressed as six-foot-tall beer cans as they swerved through the downtown streets while a high school band played Disco Inferno. A group of women marched as representatives of the Down Movement, D-O-W-N. That stood for Dispose of Wagner Now. 
During pregame ceremonies, Mayor Bobby Stern took the microphone near home plate, but the mic went out. When her voice could finally be heard welcoming the crowd and introducing dignitaries and club personnel, Wagner was loudly booed by the crowd as Stern said his name. Perhaps to take the fans' mind off their discontent, they retreated to a most unusual first pitch. Six men had paddled three canoes for 200 miles from Moorhead, Kentucky, by way of the Licking River. They carried a ball stuffed in a waterproof bag tied to the crosspiece of one of the canoes. Their objective was to publicize the college's drive to raise money to erect lights on a baseball field. The ball was used for the traditional first pitch. The San Francisco Giants scored eight runs in the second inning on their way to an 11-5 victory, and the total of 52,115 fans left the park as they had entered. Dismayed. Now, of course, the team recovered enough to win their division in 1979, but they lost in the National League Championship Series to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay, let's move to 1980. We call that Marathon Man. On April 9, the Reds continued a unique tradition concerning the first pitch. In 79, the first ball had been delivered from a canoe. This year, the Reds relied upon land transport. Keen Babbage, an employee at Sensei-based Procter & Gamble, carried the first pitch ball during a two-week, 430-mile walk from St. Louis. When he arrived in Cincinnati, he joined the march to the stadium from Finley Market as if he hadn't already walked enough. Anyway, when Babbage made it to the Queen City, he couldn't help but notice that the pomp and circumstance of opening day pleased anyone with a fancy for tradition and celebration. Among the favorites were the Jazz Butchers, who serenaded spectators along the route. The red-uniformed East Central High School Band from tiny St. Leon, Indiana, cranked up Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Three other high school bands marched as city council members waved from their convertibles. Vehicles carrying baseball enthusiasts honked their horns, and amateur entertainer and freelance dancer Adele Reddig boogied alongside the other 50 entries. Reddig was dressed in a red sweater, silver boots, and silver shorts on her bright red leotards. Bringing up the rear was the crowd favorite, eight Anheuser-Busch Clydesdale horses pulling their signature beer wagon. Babbage delivered the first ball to five-year-old Jason Edwards, the March of Dimes poster child for the Cincinnati area. From behind his walker, Jason tossed the ball to Reds catcher and future Hall of Famer Johnny Bench. After his lousy performance a year earlier, Tom Seaver was expected to start once again, but he caught the flu. 22-year-old Frank Pastore learned of the illness at 10.15 a.m. when he arrived at the clubhouse, and Reds manager John McNamara informed him that he was going to be the opening day pitcher. Pastore took it in stride and pitched a gem. 
it was a complete game shutout and the Reds waltzed to a 9-0 win. 1981, we moved to a year we simply call no first pitch. Shortly after Ronald Reagan became president, brothers William and James Williams purchased stock in the Reds from Lewis Nippert and became principal owners of the team. They soon arranged for the first pitch to be delivered by Ronald Reagan, the country's newly inaugurated president. This was indeed an honor for the city as no sitting president had ever thrown out the first pitch at an opener in Cincinnati. Adding to the excitement of Reagan's attendance was the anticipation of a pitching matchup made in Cooperstown, the home of baseball's Hall of Fame. Tom Seaver, the Reds, was scheduled to face Steve Carlton of the Phillies. Never before had two more distinguished pitchers opened the season in Cincinnati. Now, Hall of Fame pitchers Epa Rixey for the Reds and Grover Cleveland Alexander for the Chicago Cubs had faced off in the 1922 opener, but they were in the middle of their careers and were not yet as accomplished. In any event, Tickets were sold out early in the winter. History would intervene, however. On March 30, John Hinckley Jr. shot Reagan as he was leaving the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. Two days later, the White House announced that Reagan would not be well enough to make an appearance in Cincinnati for the April 8 opener. The Morning Enquirer noted the gravity of the assassination attempt with the headline, quote, this opening day has a dark cloud on the horizon, unquote. At the opener, fans wore sweatshirts bearing the message, quote, together we can, unquote, while wondering who would replace Reagan in making the ceremonial first pitch. As the first pitch was about to take place, 30-year Reds public address announcer Paul Summercamp introduced the Roger Bacon High School Band as they played their signature tune, This Is My Country. Summer Camp then made a somber announcement. It went like this. Ladies and gentlemen, had certain events of nine days ago not taken place, we would be honored to introduce you to a very good baseball fan who was to have thrown out our ceremonial first pitch. He is not here today in person, but we are sure he is with us in spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, there can really be no appropriate relief pitcher for the President of the United States, and we have decided that it is most appropriate in 1981 to have no ceremonial pitcher. Moments before summer camp's announcement, the crowd had been introduced to two honored guests. Bert Moore from Mount Vernon, Ohio, and Army Colonel Leyland Holland, whose three children resided in the Cincinnati neighborhood of Hyde Park, as they were presented with lifetime baseball passes from Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. Why would Kuhn give them lifetime passes? They were two of the 50 hostages released by their Iranian captors three months earlier. The parade that morning was rated as a nine-bander because the nine bands that lined up for the march exceeded the previous record of participating bands by three. Outside the park, Stan Piat's Dixieland Band 
played down by the river to the delight of the early arrivals. And the first pitch ball? This year, it arrived by bicycle. Bert Meyer and Peter Kuchenruder of the Cincinnati Cycle Club biked 13 days and 788 miles from the Red Cross National Headquarters in Washington, D.C. to Riverfront Stadium. Oh, yes, the game. The Seaver Carlton lived up to its hype as each hurler surrendered just one run. The Reds won a thriller in the bottom of the ninth, 3-2. to two. Let's move to 1982, and we entitle this Grand Marshal Peanut Jim. Cincinnati fans considered themselves baseball's number one victims of an unfortunate turn of events in 1981. They were hoping for better things in 1982. In 1981, MLB had endured a player's strike during the middle of the season, and Commissioner Kuhn decided to split the season in two halves. The teams with the best records in each half of the season would proceed to the postseason. For the Reds, that formula spelled disaster. The Dodgers won the first half of the season by one half game, and the Astros beat out the Reds by one and one half games in the second half. Even though the Reds had compiled the best record in all of baseball, they were excluded from the playoffs. Fans were enraged. Dick Wagner was still in charge, and he proceeded to remove another spark plug in the big red machine, power hitter George Foster. Again, the trade was sparked by a salary demand. Nonetheless, the festivities were as special as ever on April 5, but there was bad weather. It was 44 degrees when the parade started at 11.30 a.m., and heavy rain or possibly snow was in the forecast. Sports fans, though, came out in force for the morning parade, and nearly 52,000 fans would later fill the stadium. The parade featured Peanut Jim Shelton as the Grand Marshal. Shelton had sold roasted peanuts from his pushcart for 49 of the last 50 openers, and he had just retired. Once again, he wore his familiar black stovepipe hat and bow tie. Instead of pushing his cart to the riverfront, this time Peanut Jim rode to the ballpark in the back seat of a Cadillac convertible, leading the largest parade in history. The parade consisted of 80 units and 3,000 marchers, appearing stylish in red crushed velvet with an emblematic white sea a participant by the name of Mai Tai joined the parade in progress from an alley near 7th Street and Race Street. Her pace was somewhat slower than the others, as she was a 14-year-old elephant from the Cincinnati Zoo. Mr. Spoons, who was 70-year-old Joe Dipong of Mount Healthy, marched in the parade and later played the spoons on the plaza outside the stadium. Mr. Spoons had been entertaining fans for the last seven years, dressed in his Reds cap, red jacket, and red slacks. At the ballpark, the Reds continued their recent and unique tradition. The ceremonial first pitch this year consisted of two pitches. First, Air Force Colonel Joseph Engel threw a strike 
and in Navy Captain Richard Truly followed suit. Angle and Truly had brought the two balls with them as they piloted the Columbia Space Shuttle, the first vehicle in NASA's space shuttle fleet. Eagle told the crowd, We enjoyed flying this ball around. A.B. Happy Chandler, former Kentucky governor and former baseball commissioner, had been elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. The standing room only crowd gave him a rousing ovation as he was introduced. Terry Cashman, a singer-songwriter best known for his 1981 hit, Talking Baseball, entertained the crowd with his new composition, Baseball's Red Machine. Portending the rest of the 1982 season, the Reds lost this opener 3-2. 1983, we call this USS Cincinnati. The combination of the club finishing in last place for the first time since 1937 and fans' universal loathing for Dick Wagner resulted in the team's failure to sell out the April 4 opener. Only Johnny Bench and Dave Concepcion remained from the great eight of the 1970s Big Red Machine. Just over 42,000 fans attended the game, leaving 9,500 empty red seats in eight sections of the upper deck. Among the no-shows on opening day was announcer Paul Summercamp. His first absence in 2,400 and 70 games. The flu sidelined the longtime public address announcer, who was a Reds fixture and a fan favorite. Summer Camp had first set up his microphone next to the visitors' dugout at Crosley Field in 1951. This opener would be the first and only home game he ever missed before retiring in 1985. Along with missing the game, Summer Camp missed the largest parade ever. There was an elaborate Wizard of Oz float. Another entry in the pageant was based on the popular comedy film Smokey and the Bandit. Float builder Dave Christ of Goshen, Ohio, who bore a striking resemblance to the movie star Burt Reynolds, by the way, dressed as the Bandit driving a Trans Am car. The perpetually enraged sheriff, Smokey, followed with his wrecked cruiser in tow. In keeping with tradition, the Reds had come up with another fresh and outlandish idea for the delivery of the first ball. This time they chose a nuclear submarine appropriately named the USS Cincinnati. Months before opening day, Team officials had provided the crew with three baseballs, one that would be the official ball to use at the opener, and the other two as backups. The balls were carried more than 50,000 miles in the Atlantic Ocean. Master Chief Jim Brewington was a bit sheepish after he threw the ceremonial first pitch to begin the season. That was because it turned out that the original ball, designated for the opener, was still somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Brewington explained that the crew had fired the balls out of the torpedo tubes in waterproof containers, but the divers could not find the designated ball. 
Fortunately, both backups were located. Despite the disappointing size of the crowd, the Reds staged to come back and beat the Braves 5-4. Summer camp resumed his duties before the next game. 1984, we title this one, Shh, Fireworks. Sports writer Mark Purdy of the Enquirer previewed, previewed the April 2 opener by giving advice to fans attending their first opening day. He gave them 10 pieces of advice. Number one, claim you love the rotten weather. Two, pretend you recognize the songs of the bands in the parade that are playing. Three, act as if you are playing hooky and your boss actually cares. Four, lie about the ugly black shoes and low stirrups on the Reds' uniforms. Five, Give Tony Perez a standing ovation when he's introduced. Six, even if it's 28 degrees and a glacier is forming on your nose, order a beer and eat peanuts. Seven, at least once every 15 minutes, say, how about that bleeping pitcher? Eight, pretend the game actually matters. Nine, invoke the name of Pete Rose and or Sparky Anderson. And ten, Tell everybody what a great time you had. What Purdy neglected to mention was that there were new sheriffs in town after Dick Wagner was fired during the previous season. Bob Housem and his son Robert, vice president of marketing for the Reds, had decided to mix things up for the 1984 season. On the day before opening day, firing tubes were set outside the stadium, fuses were wired, and circuits and batteries were checked a senior Federal Aviation Agency official peered down the muzzles and approved the Housem's plan to shoot off fireworks after each Reds home run and every victory. In addition, opening day fans also enjoyed the debut of a new beer garden behind the left field fence. Cincinnatians, with their rich German heritage, could sit out in the beer garden and view the game from long picnic tables while enjoying their brew. The garden, surrounded by a bed of flowers, came complete with an authentic Wurlitzer military band organ. The organ would serenade beer drinkers with polkas and songs such as Roll Out the Barrel. The younger Housem also installed a new Baldwin organ in the camera pit behind home plate. Fans who wanted to be active while listening to music or watching the game could test their throwing arms with a new radar gun behind right field that gave a digital readout of their pitch speed. On the playing field, the club had taken a hacksaw to the outfield walls. The walls were lowered from 12 to 8 feet to enable outfielders to make leaping catches at the fence and to encourage home run production by the Reds. With all these changes, it was going to be a whole new ball game in 1984. Fans began to grow optimistic. They turned out in droves for the parade. The Finley market organizers outdid themselves again by arranging for 100 units to participate in the parade, including the Clydesdales and six marching bands. Johnny Bench served as Grand Marshal. He led the parade in a vintage red and white Corvette 
dressed in a purple sport coat, soft lavender shirt, and designer jeans. Bench was the focal point for the crowd's attention. JB, JB, JB was a continuous chant from the thousands lining the route. Now, once at the ballpark, the traditional ceremonies and introduction of dignitaries were highlighted by the introduction of Tony Perez, another member of the Big Red Machine. Housem had signed Perez in the offseason. Perez received a thunderous 30-second standing ovation, the loudest cheering of the day. In the second inning of the 100th National League opener for the Reds, Reds center fielder Eddie Milner hit a home run. While the crowd was cheering, Robert Lutz of Rossi's famous fireworks touched a button, causing rockets to explode above the outfield seats. It surprised both the fans and the players. Milner said, it kind of scared me at first. I thought they were shooting at me. Instead, the fireworks had been shot for Milner, and they were launched again the seventh inning following another home run and after the Reds won the game, which was an 8-1 victory. Well, let's move to 1985, a special year we call Wearing Red. April 8 was easily the most anticipated opening day in recent history. Enquirer columnist Kamala Warwick explained that there were 53,000 reasons for opening day fever. For fans, however, there were two primary reasons, Pete Rose and Marge Schott. Rose had returned to the team the previous August and was now the player manager chasing the base hit record of the legendary Ty Cobb. Schott, the owner of a car dealership empire, became the new owner of the team. Her love of the team was well known, and she championed the traditions of opening day. Her pet St. Bernard, Shotzi, was practically a club mascot. When baseball commissioner Peter Uberoth received his invitation to the opener, he laughed when he saw that it had come from Shotzi. Enquirer reporter Tim Sullivan wrote, quote, If it seems as if the season has become a sideshow, blame it on the lady with the dog and the guy with the Grecian formula. They've captured our hearts and most of the headlines. Today's standing room only sale can be only attributed then to the personal charisma of Marge, her manager, and her mongrel. The media took note of the team's new energy, with 285 press credentials being issued to interested news outlets. Shortly after 7 a.m. on opening day, CBS Morning News interviewed Uberoth live from the lobby of the Hyatt Regency Cincinnati. Cold weather and snow were in the forecast, but Uberoth predicted a great opening day nonetheless. Schott had encouraged fans to wear red, and the hotel lobby and streets outside were overflowing with crimson-covered bodies and scarlet faces. Despite 39-degree temperatures, spectators were four deep along the 15-block route from Finley Market to Fountain Square. Elephants and horses, politicians and marching bands, and convertibles and dressed-up trucks clogged traffic for three hours. Kevin Lucan, one of the longtime parade organizers, 
credits shot for making the parade what it has become today. The largest crowd for a regular season game turned out to witness the historic occasion featuring the first female owner of the Reds. The Roger Bacon Band lined up and even spelled Good Luck Marge in formation. A plane flew over the stadium with a banner arranged by the new owner. Quote, we're coming alive in 1985. Love, Marge. Unquote. Uberoth escorted Schott and her St. Bernard to center stage. Standing in front of the pitcher's mound, the first lady of the Reds delivered a high and outside pitch to catcher Dan Billardello. The spectators rose in unison to offer a standing ovation. Schott, attired in a cream-colored pantsuit, a cranberry red sweater, and loafers, waved gleefully to the crowd. On one side of her sweater, a button read, I'm Red's Hot. On the other was her name tag, as if she needed one. Despite two snow delays, the team delivered with a 4-1 to victory over the Montreal Expos, which had been Rose's second team during his five-and-a-half-year exile. Fittingly, 22 years to the day after his debut at Crosley Field, Rose hammered out two hits and drove in three runs. He was now 93 hits shy of breaking the all-time record for career hits, which he would do on September 11th of that season. He left the game to a storm of applause. The classic was missed by Cy Burek, the sports editor and columnist for the Dayton Daily News. It was the first opening day game in Cincinnati that he had missed in 56 years. He had to miss the game because he was being inducted that day into the National Sportscasters and Sportswriters Association Hall of Fame. And Burek was the only writer ever to be honored from a city that did not have a major league franchise. We move on to 1986, which is called Sparky's Revenge. After the Reds finished in second place in 1985, Schott made several expensive additions to the team. She virtually demanded a pennant in return, and Reds fans believe several prognosticators who picked the Reds to win the league championship. Controversy surrounded this opening day. For the first time in many years, the American League scheduled the Detroit Tigers to open their season 35 minutes before the National League got underway with the Reds against the Phillies. The Tigers were managed by Reds' former manager, Sparky Anderson. So the early start time came to be called Sparky's Revenge. Kenneth Blackwell, Cincinnati's vice mayor, orchestrated a tongue-in-cheek campaign against the American League for upstaging Cincinnati. He suggested that the Greater Cincinnati International Airport should suspend all landing rights for planes from the Detroit area. Of course, Blackwell and other city council members overstated their argument. The Reds had not always been granted the privilege of beginning the Major League season. When Washington had a team in the American League, they often started their season before the Reds, but Cincinnatians had developed a case of amnesia about that. In any event, opening day was a perfect day for baseball, 
with 77-degree temperatures and sunny skies. A new opening day attendance record was set by the nearly 55,000 spectators. They cheered for the Clydesdales when they entered the stadium and for Ohio Governor Richard Celeste, who wore a Shotzi cap. National League President Charles Chubb Feeney threw out the first pitch, and the Reds won on to win their fourth opener in a row, 7-4. Mario Soto outlasted the Phillies' Steve Carlton. 1987, we call this year a Mickey Mouse start. The New York Times reported on April 6 that the smallest planet in the solar system, Pluto, was having an identity crisis. Some astronomers were suggesting that Pluto was not a planet at all. Many people actually wrongly believed that the heavenly body was named after the Walt Disney character named Pluto, a dog that first appeared in a Mickey Mouse animated cartoon in 1931. Ironically, Pluto's friend Mickey Mouse served as the Grand Marshal of the 1987 parade and later delivered the ceremonial first pitch before another record crowd of over 55,000. Inside the ballpark, National League President Bart Giamatti had been scheduled to throw out the first pitch, but he was replaced at the last minute by former baseball commissioner and Kentucky Governor Happy Chandler. Giamatti was forced to remain in New York negotiating an end to another threatened strike by umpires and the agreement was not finalized until 10 a.m. on opening day. The Reds would score 11 runs, tying the club's record for most runs on opening day, beating the Houston Astros 11-5. It was their fifth opening win in a row and the 12th in their last 14 openers. We move on to 1988, which was Cincinnati's bicentennial. Cincinnati was founded in 1788 when Matthias Denman, Colonel Robert Patterson, and Israel Ludlow arrived by boat on the northern bank of the Ohio River. The governor of the Northwest Territory, Arthur St. Clair, adopted Cincinnati as the name for the settlement in honor of the Society of the Cincinnati, an association for former officers of the Revolutionary War. The society took its name from Cincinnatus, a Roman general credited with saving the city of Rome. With its nickname of the City of Seven Hills, Cincinnati still has a connection with Rome and its Seven Hills. The opening day parade on April 4, 1988 included signs marking the bicentennial. Traffic was again snarled as streets around the route were closed beginning at 9 a.m. It was a beautiful day under sunny skies and on Central Parkway, halfway along the route, nearly 2,000 friends of the Hootapole Shaneling Brewing Company gathered for their annual party. The two breweries had merged in 1986. Under a large white tent in a parking lot, guests enjoyed beans, hot dogs, and samples of Hootapool's trademark 14K beer. As fans made their way to the park, 
vendors were busy selling hats and shirts for the upcoming All-Star Game scheduled for Cincinnati in July. Before the game, the teams recognized two former Reds greats who had died recently, Ted Klazuski and Ed Rausch. Everyone bowed their heads during a moment of silence for these beloved former players. Okay, 1989, we call this Say It Ain't So, Pete. Pete Rose was once again the center of attention on April 3, 1989, but for all the wrong reasons. Rose was being investigated by Major League Baseball. The allegation was that Rose had violated a long-standing rule against team players or officials betting on baseball. When reports surfaced of Rose's possible infraction, there was a nationwide media circus, and the circus joined the Cincinnati Carnival on opening day. Fans always eagerly anticipated an opener with the rival Los Angeles Dodgers. The 1989 game was sold out within 24 hours when tickets went on sale December 1. Supermarkets and businesses had painted their windows with baseball scenes. We're Reds hot and turn them Dodgers blue. Red flu swept the region. Adults and children lined the parade route where they saw majorettes, huge hot dogs riding in a classic convertible, a beaver masquerading as a balloon, jalopies, and marching bands. While other dignitaries were being introduced, Rose made his first appearance in front of the crowd since the investigation had begun. He was introduced and given an award for his contributions to youth baseball in the city he received a standing ovation. Fifteen minutes later, Rose received a second minute-long standing ovation when he was introduced with the starting lineups. As country music star Lee Greenwood sang, God Bless the USA, several boxes of pigeons were released. The flock circled the stadium twice before taking flight over the left field wall. Greenwood then sang the national anthem, and hundreds of helium-filled red balloons were released from behind the center field fence. Recent Hall of Fame inductee Johnny Bench then received an ovation before he threw out the ceremonial first pitch. The game was on, and in what would be the last opening day for Peter Edward Rose, the Reds scored early and hung on for a 6-4 win. Okay, let's move to our last year in this particular episode, 1990. We're going to call this Lockout and Delay. For only the fifth time in their storied history, the Reds were forced to play their opener in 1990 on the road in Houston. Season opening rainouts in 1877, 1885, and 1966 and the only scheduled opener on the road in 1888 had resulted in little fanfare when the Reds returned home. Those teams, however, were not owned by Marge Schott. She refused to allow anything to interfere with the holiday in Cincinnati. You see, the season had been scheduled to start on April 2, 1990, 
but that date was scrapped after an owner's lockout of the players delayed spring training. That meant the Reds were on the road during the first week that play occurred. The parade organizers canceled the parade as a result. President George H.W. Bush had been scheduled to be the first president to throw out a pitch at a Reds opener, but with the schedule modification, Bush attended a political fundraiser instead. A home opener in Cincinnati would not occur until April 17. Still, Schott wanted her parade. How many days do you need to organize a parade, she asked parade chairman Jeff Gibbs. He replied, 21. You've only got 20, Shot retorted. Done, Gibbs answered. Gibbs vowed to plan the biggest parade we've ever had. The market area was in the midst of a transformation. As the area's revitalization program using federal community development funds was picking up steam. Indeed, the lockout-delayed edition of the parade became the largest in history. A Reds fan who had attended 70 consecutive openers, Marie Dieterman of Kenwood, Ohio, was honored to be the Grand Marshal. She was joined in her car by a six-year-old t-ball enthusiast attending his first opener. The two would later throw out the first pitches as relief pitchers for the president. The festivities included a 22-month-old Christopher Reardon of Amelia, Ohio, named America's Most Beautiful Baby, a Wienermobile sponsored by Oscar Mayer, 10 mini Grand Prix cars, and a restored trolley car from the Cincinnati Historical Society. Schott walked the entire parade route. When game time arrived, the fans had reason to celebrate the string of games that preceded the Cincinnati opener. The Reds had been perfect on the road trip, winning six straight games against Houston and Atlanta. Red, white, and blue bunting along the stadium railings gave the stadium a World Series look. The ushers and grounds crew were dressed in tuxedos and tails. The pregame hoopla lived up to previous standards including an appearance by the U.S. Army Reserve's 100th Division Band, another special release of pigeons, and tricks performed by Princess Shotzi, an elephant. Two members of the self-proclaimed Nasty Boys, Norm Charlton and Randy Myers, pitched three scoreless innings in relief, and the Reds extended their winning streak to seven games in a 2-1 nail-biter. By the way, Rob Dibble was a third nasty boy. When the Reds' new manager, Lou Pinella, a rookie when it came to opening day in Cincinnati, saw 100 reporters waiting in the press room after the game, he asked, Is this the postseason or what? The Reds shocked the baseball world by going wire to wire, meaning they were in first place in the National League for every single day of the season. They went on to win their division, and later sweep the heavily favored Oakland Athletics in the World Series. Not a bad run for the new skipper, Lou Pinella. Well, that concludes this episode, and I hope you tune in for the rest of our podcast. This is Randy Freaking signing off, and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. <laughs>